We're going to be looking at John chapter 2, verses 23 through chapter 3 and verse 3. It's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of John. So I'm going to do a little bit of a recap of this morning. entitled this, Jesus Knows the Hearts of Men. Let me just remind us of a few things before we get into our text this morning. In his prologue in John chapter 1, the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives us a great Christological theology. Uh, that just simply means the study of Christ, but it's, it's an overwhelming uh, theology there in John chapter 1, especially verses 1 through 18, telling us about the Word that was in the beginning, who was with God, face to face with the Father as we studied together, and who was God, that is eternally God, He has always been God, and also the Creator of all things, uh, the one through which the Father created. John also tells us of another John, John the Baptizer, and his ministry of making the way for the Word, and that all who believe in the Word are given the right by the Word to be called the children of God. Now, we must keep this bit in mind as we study. We'll reference that again <clears throat> this morning in John chapter 1 and verse 12 in our text. <clears throat> For John has told us in the end of his gospel that he has written these things about the Word and his signs so that we may believe in his name. <clears throat> and it's revealed to us in this prologue that Jesus is, in fact, the Word, the one who is truly God and truly Man, and we've seen Jesus in the beginning chapters of this gospel revealed by John the baptizer to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <clears throat> and we have seen Jesus reveal himself to men such as Philip and Andrew and Peter and Nathaniel. And uh, he does this by way of even saying what Nathaniel was doing under this fig tree as he was, uh, Jesus did not see him, but he saw him miraculously. And, and Jesus just shows a small amount of people at a wedding in Cana, his disciples, his mother, and some servants who he encourages and implores to <clears throat> pour some water into some jars. He showed them his power. A sign was performed, the water being turned into wine. And so this morning I'd like for us to pick up our reading in John chapter 2 and verse 13, and get all the way into the first few verses of chapter 3 to set the context for our passage today. So if you're able to, would you please stand with me? I'm going to read aloud and ask you to follow in your copy of the Word of God those verses, starting in John chapter 2 and verse 13. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John, also known by many as the Evangelist, writes, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign... Notice that verbiage there. It's important for our text today. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they, had, when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these, notice what it says, signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You may be seated. That is the word of God. In the New Testament reading this morning, would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, even as you are the light of the world, even as those who have trusted in you, those of us who are gathered here this morning that are in Christ, have been given the light of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We ask now that your Holy Spirit, who inspired these words, would now illuminate our eyes to an understanding and an application of these truths. Lord, even, yes, a proclamation of these truths to those with whom you give us opportunity this week. And I pray for those who do not know you, that are in our midst, that today would be the day that the Holy Spirit would convict them by this word and convert them, Lord, according to your will. And Lord, we will give you all the honor and the glory and the praise for that, if that is your will. Lord, I ask that you would continue to humble me, get me out of the way. May we only see the glory of the triune God this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Faith is not blind, as we might have possibly possibly been told. No, we believe in something objective. That is, our belief is in an object. We believe in something. We believe something to be true, though we may not have seen it. But faith is not blind. The question is, in what or in whom do we believe? What is the substance of our faith? Faith is a conduit. Faith is something that we exercise because we've been given something by God in order to do that. Repentance and faith. Faith is the channel by which we access the object. My friend Rick Holland says the gospel is found in a person In the Lord Jesus Christ. We proclaim him, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Our belief is in someone. Our belief is in who he is and what he has done. And the purpose of what he has done. This becomes a very important matter as John continues to unfold his gospel. There's Nicodemus who will be introduced to today. Where this issue of what is it that we believe in becomes key. There is the woman at the well where the issue of what is it or who is it that we are believing in, the object of our faith becomes so important. Uh, There is the nobleman who comes to Jesus 
where this issue of what and who we believe in becomes so important. There are the, the crowds that begin to follow Jesus and the reason that they are following him, he calls them to task on. Yes, this matter of belief becomes so important. And even as we understand that idea today, it isn't just some distant historical reality in a conversation with a, a man named Nicodemus or an unnamed Samaritan woman at a well or an unnamed nobleman or these crowds that follow him. It is a reality for today for us to ask these questions. All of these instances will point to a particular kind of belief. Either that which is true saving faith or that which is in belief in what Jesus can do and not, what, not who he is and what he has come to do. And we will see that distinction take root today in the Gospel of John. And it becomes such a perfect and, and, and needed lens for us to look at the rest of the Gospel together. Because we see these two kinds of belief uh, throughout the Gospel of John. True saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and clearly from the perspective of the people who he himself is with, he has not died yet. He has not gone to the cross. He has not risen again. So they are looking to, we'll say this in a moment, looking to what he will do and who he says he is and the proofs of that, which are the signs. And, and then there is a, a faith that is not a, a, a faith which saves. It's not a saving faith. It's more of a, he's kind of a neat guy. He can do some neat things for me, but he is not the Savior who he claims to be. So much so that those who would claim to follow and believe him, abandon him, and are the very same people who stand uh, at the cross and say, crucify him, crucify him. Here's the main point this morning. If you turn your worship folder over, you'll see this written there for you. Intellectual assent or belief in signs is not gospel belief. You must be born from above. You must be born again. Intellectual assent or belief in signs is not gospel belief. You must be born from above or born again. I want us to see this morning three facets of this passage which instruct us concerning true saving faith. Three facets of this passage that instruct us concerning true saving faith. The first is this. Belief can be void of saving faith. Belief can be void of saving faith. Look at chapter 2 and verse 23 again. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, first, uh, we notice here, the, and maybe we ask this question, what were they believing in? Well, well, clearly it says they were believing in his name. Good enough on some level, but why were they believing in his name? Because of what? What does it say? The signs he was doing, right? This actually becomes, as I mentioned earlier, a running theme in John in which Jesus challenges the people who follow him as to why they are following him. Notice a bit more as we dig into this. There were many who believed in his name. 
This is contrasted in two ways with the previous passage. The religious leaders were asking for a sign. For a sign that he had authority to turn over the tables in the temple. Remember that? We just read it. They say to him, what sign will you give us? And what does he proclaim to them? He doesn't proclaim, hey, check this out. I can you know, pull a rabbit out of my hat. No. He, he proclaims to them the ultimate miracle. The ultimate sign. A miracle, by the way, uh, in the scripture means either power or sign. The word that's translated miracle. So he proclaims to them the resurrection. Though they don't at this point understand it. His disciples later on remember what the scriptures say and the word that he spoke, it says. But there is no greater sign. In fact, he says this later on, doesn't he? I will give you the sign of Jonah, he says. The, the one who was swallowed by a whale and three days later was spat out onto dry land. Either as one who had truly been dead in the belly of that fish, or it was as if he was dead in the belly of that fish. There are both sides to that understanding. But this is the ultimate sign. Again, the disciples eventually understand that this is what he was referring to as he was raised from the dead. And what does it say, though? At that time, when they understood it, they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So right away, John is distinguishing two types of belief. It is clear that at least one of the Pharisees has a surface belief in Jesus after challenging him about his authority, because that is why Nicodemus comes to him in the night, as we will see in a moment. But the full trust of Christ is not in what he can do for me, but rather in what he did as a final work for me as a sinner. This is part of the point this morning. We are not giving Jesus a try to see how it works out. That's why some were following him. We're going to see in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is this really long passage. Um, Jesus miraculously feeds over 5,000 people, likely more eight to 10,000 people from uh, two fishes and five loaves of, of bread. And, 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 and the next day they come to him and they kind of say, hey, my, my stomach's kind of grumbling, Lord. What else you got for us? And he challenges them as to why they are there. Why are you here? And then what does he say? I am the bread of what? Life. You want bread? (laughs) Partake of me, he says. The symbolic version of that this morning in the bread that we received at the table. I am the true manna, he says. Some were coming to him only for the way in which his powers could be useful for their benefits. This is similar, indeed, to the old covenant people who, when God miraculously delivered them from Egypt, did not worship God, but rather complained when things did not go according to their plan. We see this at the spying out of the land. The majority of them did not trust God to give them Canaan, though God had delivered them from Egypt through the Red Sea and had defeated their enemy. 
What is that? (laughs) Thank you, God, for the sign, but I don't trust you. Same thing in Jesus' day. I mean, can you imagine being an Israelite walking through the Red Sea with the walls of water on either side? The ground is dry. It's estimated maybe about a million people walking through that. Getting on the other side, here, are, 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 here is Pharaoh and his army in their chariots, hot on your heels. And God swallows them up in that sea. And like within a couple of weeks, you're like, okay, God, what do we get to eat? Uh, this manna stuff isn't working out too well. Thanks, but no thanks. Is it not the same for us? We have those who have made professions of faith in Christ, and as soon as things are not as they would like, they abandon the faith, having never really trusted in the first place. Concerning this passage, Homer Kent states, quote, their faith was superficial, based only on miracles they had seen, end quote. And you've heard this, haven't you? You've, you've heard people in our day say, if God would give me a sign that I would believe in him. The scriptures tell us this is a superficial faith. And in all truth, God has given us the greatest sign. The one to which Jesus points to the religious leaders. He who was dead and buried by the predetermined plan of God, by the hands of sinful men, has been raised from the dead and is alive today and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the miracle that you need to trust. The finished work of Christ. The evangelist then tells us Jesus, what Jesus thinks about their belief, which we see in our next point. In verses 24 through 25 of chapter 2, Jesus did not believe in mankind's belief. Jesus did not have faith in their faith. In a marvelous play on words, John takes the language of his prologue and turns it on his head with Jesus as the one doing the believing or rather not believing. Look back at John chapter 1 and verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now look at verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, did not believe them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is a running theme in the Gospel of John. Simply because someone was following him did not give Jesus a reason to believe that they were really his. We'll see this, as I mentioned earlier, in chapter 6. It says, many who were believing in him walked away because the things he was saying were hard. And it says they never returned to him. What do we do with that? That is a superficial, non-gospel-believing faith. There's a purpose statement here concerning what Jesus, why Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Look at it again. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is a reflective statement by John the Apostle. 
he is reflecting on the past as Jesus walked the earth. He's, he's making a comment here about what happened in this moment and looking back upon the ministry of Jesus and saying, this is what I know now as one who followed Jesus. And, and, and John, the apostle, as he's writing this, is a very old man. He's had much time to reflect upon this. And certainly we understand that this is being superintended by the Holy Spirit. So how do we understand this? What, what, how do we take this idea that Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, etc.? This can be taken in several ways. Jesus knows man because he has now, as this is occurring, dwelled as a man for 30 years. Closely tied to this could be Jesus, uh, Jesus knowing mankind because he has seen mankind around him as contrasted to who he is because he has not sinned. Or this could be his knowledge as God, knowing the particular hearts of those who would have a superficial belief in him. So, so you understand those three options. Either he says this because he is a man, Therefore, now as the God-man, he is able to understand mankind in a, from, the, from the perspective of being a man. Uh, or uh, that uh, he has seen mankind, he's grown up uh, 30 years with mankind around him. Uh, and he understands uh, in his sinlessness what is in the hearts of men because he sees them acting out in ways against God. Or he might have a particular knowledge of each individual because he is God. So which do we choose? Perhaps it's a reality of all three. The trueness of Jesus as God is that he possesses all the attributes of God, even in his incarnation. And he is yet in the incarnation truly man. He is not a a tertium quid, a, a third thing. He is in his incarnation and now forever a man. But he is always and ever has been, never changing, God. He knows the hearts of men because he is their creator. And he knows what is in man because in his incarnation, he is a man and has experienced what it's like to be a man. And the rest of scripture tells us to be tempted. So what we read here about what is true of Jesus as he walks the earth must be true Today as well. Jesus knows things both as God and man. As the God man. He knows our hearts better than we do. Because he is God and our creator. And he knows the truth about mankind experientially. Because he has lived as a man. And lived around mankind. You cannot hide from God. And you cannot say that Jesus does not understand In this, Jesus is the light of the world. He exposes our hearts. And if we are enabled by him, we see the darkness of our hearts and our need of him. Jesus was unwilling, some translations say, to commit himself to these ones who believed in him because he understood their faith was a superficial faith. And the challenge for us today as we think about even coming to the table today is, am I one who truly believes? Do I have a superficial faith? Or is my faith a true faith? Do I believe because that's the way I've been raised? Do I believe because I've just 
You know, I had, I had, I had a roommate in college who said, uh, I'm not a Christian, I just like hanging around them. He said it as a joke. I'm not sure that it was actually that untrue of him. I went to Bible college, by the way. Do we have a superficial faith, a faith that says, Jesus, what can you do for me materially? How can you fill my stomach? Or is it a faith that says, you are God of very God. You lived a perfect life. You died in the place of sinners like me. You rose again and you are coming again. I put everything, all of that I am in that. My trust is in that. Once again, the point is that Jesus did not believe the belief of those who were believing in his name because their belief was not a gospel belief. Have we turned from our sin and trusted in Christ alone to be made right, to be reconciled to the triune God? We see this illustrated in our final point. Even those steeped in religion needed to learn this lesson about faith. Even those steeped in religion need to learn this lesson about faith. Clearly, we're going to look at this interaction with Nicodemus and Jesus more fully, but this introduction to Nicodemus illustrates what John has just stated in this previous section in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3. What does Nicodemus say? Look at it again. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And remember when we see that phrase, the Jews, most typically in the Gospel of John, he's referring to the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees. This man came to Jesus by night. Any wonder as to why he did that? (laughs) Well, Jesus has just been called out by the Pharisees, right, for turning over the tables, and they ask for a sign. And so this ruler of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, comes to him, seems best to understand this under the cover of night. Maybe he's wearing a cloak with a hood up over him (laughs) so no one can see him. But he's got questions for Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one else can do these, what, signs that you do unless God is with him. He recognizes him as a teacher This is interesting because Nicodemus himself is a teacher, and Jesus, in fact, calls him the teacher of Israel later on in this passage. What kind of teacher does Nicodemus recognize Jesus to be? One who is from God. Why? For no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Nicodemus, we have to give him some credit here. At least he's got part of this right. God is with Jesus. (laughs) But Nicodemus fails to see that Jesus is God in the flesh. This is why Jesus responds as he does. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Uh, Some understand this phrase to be born from above. Uh, We have to uh, understand that that may be a meaning that's kind of behind this because Nicodemus' response of how does one climb back into his mother's womb and be born again That's the way it fits that, right? I don't understand this terminology, Jesus. I think we can understand this to be born again, born from above, being born of God. And he talks about this idea of the kingdom of God. 
Signs and wonders in the latter age were a sign that God's kingdom is coming and that his Messiah is coming. So, so Nicodemus is on the right track. But his question, as S. Lewis Johnson says, is the same question that is true of many who come to Jesus. What must I do to enter into the kingdom of God? Though he does not ask that directly. Jesus gets to the heart of the issue because he knows what's in the hearts of men. See how this ties together now? Uh, I I really am not a fan of the way sometimes chapters are broken up in the Bible because it it helps us or or it hinders us from seeing the connection here. John is very purposely saying Jesus knew that these men were believing, or these men and women were believing in him because of what they saw. And what does Nicodemus come? Surely you're a teacher who is from God because you've done these signs. He's having a sign type belief. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you need to understand. You need to understand what it means to truly know God. Jesus' statement here is a reflection of what Nicodemus along with others have missed. The signs point to a reality. This is what John at the end of his gospel states as we looked at in our first sermon. And he continues to bring focus upon the reasons for the signs. It is to point to who Jesus truly is. He is a teacher, but he is not just a teacher who is from God. Certainly he is. He says, I come from heaven. But he also is proclaiming that he is God. True belief is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, which his miracles, his power and signs point to. These are manifested for the sake of, of believing in who he is and what he has done. Once again, from the perspective of those in his day, it was uh, where he was headed. And for us, it is looking back upon that finished work. Professed believer. If you are here this morning and you have professed a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have you fully and finally put your trust in Christ alone? Or are you hopeful that Jesus will do something different for you. The reality is He has already done it all. He has lived the life that you could not live. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed, where where Moses says there will be a greater prophet who is to come who will stand as I have stood and do greater things yet. Jesus has succeeded in all of those things. And therefore, as John the baptizer says, he is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of all kinds of people from all around the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation. There is no one for any reason who cannot hear the gospel and then respond as God gives them repentance and faith. Is your trust in Christ alone Are you dissatisfied with what Jesus has done for you thus far? If that is the case, my question is, do you understand what he has done? Is it some cultural belief for you, some familial belief for you? I've always been raised in the church or something along those lines. Or is it a true, final, full trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is our only hope, and He is our only joy. The treasure 
of eternal life is Jesus. Is walking with Christ in the glory of the Father and of the Spirit. He has already done it all. Perhaps you're not sure then where you stand with God or know for sure that you have been redeemed. Let me challenge you with what Jesus has challenged Nicodemus with here. You must be born again. You must be born from above. It is a work of God in your heart to transform you, to make you his child. From the perspective of mankind, it is this. Today, if you have not, you turn from your sin and you trust in the good news, the the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have, we continue to trust. We live in such a way that reflects that we trust God, that He has indeed done what He has promised and He will continue to do what He has promised and He will fulfill as Mikey said earlier, all of his promises. He is coming again. Are we living as those who have truly trusted in him today? Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts the truth today, Lord. You are the one who saves us. You are the one who sanctifies us. You are the one who will glorify us, Lord, and we long for that day. Pray for those who do not know you that today would be the day that they would repent and trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.